How many of you all are using some sort of computer Bible study program? You're using Lagos. You got Lagos. You got Lagos. Okay, that that really was what I wanted to do the last the last class. Am I missing something? Am I am I on Eddie? Am I on now? Okay. Um, that was really what I had intended at the beginning was to take the last class and to take you know go through uh, Lagos. Now the way this has worked out with the conference coming up. I think that if any of the rest of you, and I know there are more people in the congregation that would like to get some, at least some basic guidance. So what I may do is instead of having class next week, wait until a couple of weeks after the conference and then have a session at night where we go over over Lagos and some of these things because it's very helpful in a lot of ways. Okay, um, just, before we took, just before we took the break or while we were at the break, Jeff raised a question. Of course, Jeff's not in here to hear the answer to the question, but that's okay. He'll miss out. Oh, there he is. Now he comes running in here. He answered an important question. That is, <clears throat> what is the uh, – how, how does a person, person in the pew, what, how do they connect and relate what you're learning in Bible study methods with the, the teaching uh, of a pastor? And that's, that's an important question because you, I've seen pros and cons. Anything can go bad. Anything can, people can distort and, and mess up anything that's, that's, that's good and profitable. <clears throat> I've seen situations in churches where uh, people were studying, and they just go off on their own tangent. Um, I haven't seen, that I know of, seen anything like that happen here, but when I was in Preston City, there was somebody who was reading stuff on the Internet, and he ended up, um, he, he ended up becoming a hyper-dispensationalist. And he just, you know, quietly left the church, which was fine. He told me what had gone on, that he just couldn't sit under my ministry anymore, and that was fine. But I've seen situations where people will start studying the Word, and they'll come to conclusions that differ from the pastor. They may or may not differ from the doctrinal statement of the church, but they differ from the pastor, and then they start teaching that. And the issue in a local church is that people who teach need to teach in a local church, in Sunday school, whether it's adult Sunday school or children's Sunday school, need to recognize that they're there to teach what the church and the leadership of the church, specifically the pastor, believes is important should be taught. Because that that is the structure of unity and organizational unity within the congregation. And I've been in situations in several different churches where uh, I knew what the basic belief system was in the, congrega- in, in the congregation and from the pastor, and it wasn't my place to teach differently from the pastor in a Sunday school class uh, or whatever the class was that I was that I was teaching. And some people have trouble with that. Well, you know, I've got to teach what I believe the Scripture teaches. That's true, but you don't have to uh, try to elevate your own understanding of Scripture over against the pastor's understanding of the Scripture. And usually this happens with younger men who are 
um, sophomoric in their understanding of Scripture. Now, you said it's a technical term. From the, sophomore comes from two Greek words, sophos meaning wise and mor, moros meaning fool. And it's the wise fool. They, they've learned enough to be dangerous, but not enough to, to, to be uh, stable and sober. And we've seen some of that. I don't think we've seen it here so much, but I've seen it in other places. And it happens a lot with seminary students because all of a sudden they just get overloaded with a lot of information. And they think they've learned a lot more than they have, and they really haven't had time to sift through and really understand and think through consistently what they've learned. And they'll frequently think, I know more than the pastor. I've even had, I had one person who left this church who said, well, haven't you ever read this, 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 and this? I said, yeah, I wrote papers on that in the doctoral program 25 years ago. Um, I knew more about that then than you probably ever will know. But this is just what happens with, with arrogance sometimes. So that's, that's the negative side of people who are studying the Bible for themselves. The positive side is that when you read the Bible for yourself, you're reading through passages. For example, I'm teaching Matthew, Acts, and Romans right now. We're just finishing Acts. Um, and we spend a lot of time in, in things that are taught in those particular epistles. But there are so many promises and so many principles and so many things that you need to be reminded of. We all do. Just reading the Scripture on a daily basis. We learn who people are. We learn the structure of events. We learn the history of the text, the history of Israel, the history of the lives of Jesus and Peter and Paul. And it's important to know that, to be an informed listener. In much of the history of this country in the first two or three centuries, it was not uncommon in any church for half the men in the church to be at least as adept in Greek as the pastor. And there would be in a congregation the size of ours probably 20 men in the, sitting in the congregation who could follow the pastor in their Greek text because they were informed. They weren't, uh, they weren't doing it um, uh, in, in an antagonism to the pastor or checking him out, but so they could get as much as they could out of the pastor's teaching. And that is a real reason for being involved in a personal Bible study. You may not go into all of the depth. You may not have all the tools to do word studies and other things. But to the degree that you're able to do it, you're going to be able to get more out of, out of the passage you're reading. And by learning the tools of Bible study methods, when you read a passage and you think, that really doesn't make sense to me, there's got to be a problem there you have some basic tools so that you can at least go and do a little uh, elementary research on that yourself to figure out what what the solution. You know where to go and what to what to look, and even if that doesn't quite satisfy you, it, it educates you, and there's nothing wrong with education. A lot of people are afraid that they may believe the wrong thing about a passage in Scripture. People like that don't grow very far in their spiritual life. Fear never produces anything positive. And uh, if you talk to anybody who's any pastor who's honest, they will admit that they have taught numerous passages in ways that may not have been, or the bottom line may not have been that wrong. Uh, there are a lot of times when I've heard pastors teach excellent biblical principles, but unfortunately they were just aren't taught in that passage they were using to teach it. That happens a lot. They teach a true thing, but that's really not what that passage is about. So it's, it's uh, um, every pastor is in a learning curve. 
from the first day there. In fact, I tell a lot of young pastors when I'm teaching them that you're probably going to want to throw most of throw away most of what you teach your first 10 years because the first 10 years you're just five steps ahead of your congregation and they're nipping at your heels because you're just trying to learn the text. You don't know it that well. You're 30 years old, 35 years old. You don't know this text nearly as well as you will when you're 55, 60, 65, or 70 years years of age. And when you get that time in grade 30 years down the road, you're going to have a much greater understanding of what certain passages in Scripture are teaching than you do when you're 30. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes. But you have a lot of people in the pew who have sort of a, uh, they just think that, oh, this guy's got the gift of pastor-teacher, and he's got a master's in theology from seminary, so he has all the answers. He may have a lot of answers, but he may, but there are areas that he hasn't had time to study yet and has hasn't had time to reflect on. So everybody makes mistakes handling the text. And so it, it, you should never run away from it because you're afraid you may misunderstand something or may um, uh, get confused. Because in the process of learning anything, we make mistakes and we get confused. And that's, how, that's the process of growth. We learn more from the mistakes we make in life than from the things we do right. And, and so there's nothing wrong with that. And Scripture mandates us to read the Scripture. Everybody should read the Bible because it's God's Word to each one of us, and we should come to understand it at, at, at least so that we know um, what is said, who the people are, what the major events are, and how these things relate to one another so that we can understand things that the pastor says and that we can reflect upon those. And we're reminded in Acts uh, 17 that after Paul, here's an apostle who gets direct revelation from God, and he goes to the church in Berea, and he praises them because even at, he doesn't say, well, they just rejected my authority and they didn't listen to me. I'm the apostle Paul. God told me what, you know, what the, the truth is. He said he praised them because they went home and they searched the scriptures daily to make sure that what he taught was accurate. So that's part of the role of the congregation is to be biblically knowledgeable. And uh, and that's how it fits. Does that answer your question? Yes, so everybody needs to be a student of the text to whatever degree you can, not to necessarily challenge the pastor, but I know that there are people, and there's some of you have said, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm con- you, you've read something, you come and ask me a question on it, and I'm certainly not afraid to answer anybody's questions, I think that's very helpful. I have learned over the years as a pastor that a lot of times uh, I, I learn how opaque my teaching has been by the questions that are asked. Now, I thought I taught that a lot more clearly. In fact, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine this morning and reminded him, and said, remember the old saying that if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. And that's true. A lot of times pastors get, we get, there's some tough passages in Scripture. Let me tell you, there's some tough passages in Matthew. And uh, I'm not looking forward to having to deal with several in Matthew. But hopefully by the time I get there, the Lord will give me guidance and direction in my study, and I'll be able to uh, uh, come to a reasonable understanding of those passages. Okay. Part of that is that what I want to do today is, since I said the last class I wanted to go over some computer things, I I want to do that later.
So tonight is, I think, will be our last class as we go through application. Now, to go through one final thing on application, I want to go back to Habakkuk. I don't know how many of you did the work in the workbook on Habakkuk in terms of uh, observation and interpretation. We spent some time on Habakkuk a while back, but I want to think about Habakkuk now in terms of application. Remember, the context of Habakkuk is what? The impending attack by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Habakkuk is a prophet of God. He's writing approximately 606-607 B.C. 605 is Nebuchadnezzar's first assault on Judea or Judah. And in this context, Habakkuk, who seems to be rather self-righteous at the beginning, wants to know why God isn't judging the people around him. He says in, he asks his initial question in verses 2 through 4 of the first chapter, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There's strife and contention arises. There's strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. What is Habakkuk's complaint here? He's complaining that he looks around Judah. He looks at God's people and they are apostates. They are rebellious, they're contentious, there's strife, there's violence, there's criminality, there's abuse. Uh, the law seems to be impotent. And there, I would say, that refers to the Mosaic law. People are not obedient to the law. They're rejecting it. There, there's no justice in the land because there's no integrity from the law in the land. And he looks around and he says, there, there are very few who are righteous. We're surrounded by the wicked, and, and all we see is... His decisions uh, from from the courts that are perverse and wrong. Okay, so we we can go through. We make certain observations. We can talk about those things. We, our interpretation. He's complaining about the apostasy in Israel just prior to God's bringing judgment in the land. What's the application? Or should we say, what's the core, how can we, what's the implication of this for us in light of what I was talking about last time? Application meaning, because here there's no command to do something. When we went back in terms of Hendricks last time, let me put this over on the other screen here so you can look at it. Um, Hendricks raises these nine questions. Is there an example for me to follow? A sin to avoid, a promise to claim, a prayer to repeat, a command to obey, a condition to meet, a verse to memorize, an error to mark, or a challenge to face. Okay, here he's got a summary of the, the questions. None of those questions relate to what I just read. What sort of implication do you see here for, this, for, for these three verses? If you're thinking in terms of Applying that, or extrapolating any general principles here that can be applied to 
our present contemporary time. Through God's permissive will, uh, evil and apostasy can exist all around you. That's right. In God's permissive will, he allows people volition so that they can uh, rebel against him and and you, you see the consequences of that in terms of uh, sin in the in a culture. What else do you, what else do we see here? That uh, God doesn't play favorites, you know, even with His own uh, nation. God doesn't play favorites even with His own people. What else do we see here in terms of implication? He doesn't act on our time scale. I think that comes in a little later, but but yeah, yeah, He wants something now, and and that would be an implication. Yeah. Um, Anybody see any parallels between what Habakkuk is facing and what we see here? Has anybody here heard of a judicial decision in the last two weeks of the Senate? What in the world is wrong with these idiots sitting on the bench? How can they how can they make these decisions that are completely contrary to the Constitution, contrary to our history, and contra- contrary to the uh, Judeo-Christian ethic, which is the foundation of this country? How many of us have said that just in the last two weeks with decisions that have been handed down? I mean, we can we can completely identify, in many ways, with Habakkuk's sense of frustration. How many of us have said, if if God doesn't do something soon, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because we seem to be much much worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in terms of the uh, moral perversity in our culture. So there's a there's a great parallel there. We expect God to do something, and it doesn't seem that God is doing anything. He just seems to allow the culture to continue to uh, go down the tubes. And that's a real problem, especially for some people. And I think in our culture and in our history, coming out of uh, sort of an Americanized version of evangelicalism, after the Second World War when Christianity was on on a... um, a real rise of popularity in this country in the 50s and 60s and 70s, where in in a lot of contexts, Americanism and American patriotism and Christianity were blended and identified together so that what's good for Christianity is good for the nation, what's good for the nation is good for Christianity. And the American constitution, American culture, is virtually enthroned upon a, a, a biblical throne. And then all of a sudden things start to come unraveled and start to deteriorate and the culture begins to go through a massive shift from the mid-60s up to the present. And it's how can you, how can you elevate America to this, this as a nation to, to almost the idea of a Christian nation in one sense of that term? And I think that's a problem for a lot of people because they, um, they, they don't under... I've even heard some Christians say, well, America must not even be around in the tribulation. They've so idealized America that they can't see America even being part of the tribulation. America is going to be like every other country in the world, and they're going to be part of the Antichrist kingdom. And they're going to be just as as loaded with anti-God, anti-biblical uh, mentality as, as the Soviet Union was. It, it's going to be just that way. So we can't uh, idealize uh, America. And that is what some people, and you, you know, if anybody had the right to idealize themselves, it would be Judah and Israel, because they had a direct covenant and promise with God. So, you know, we can, we can generalize here that just as Hezekiah looked out on the pagan, what had become a pagan culture around him, 
we too look out and see an extremely pagan, perverse culture around us. And then we see God's reply, which starts in um, verse 5. And God talks to, addresses him, he says to uh, Habakkuk, look among the nations, this goes from 5 to 11, look among the nations and watch, you know, look out, observe history, look at current events, be astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. So what we see here is God making a point that in his sovereign will, he, he raises nations and he uh, destroys nations. I'm raising up the Chaldeans and defines them as a bitter and hasty nation. Now, if I were had the time, I would go and do a word study. What does it mean, a bitter nation or a hasty nation? How is that translated? What are the words there? That would be part of observation so that we could come to a better understanding of the passage. A bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth. Now, I think I've gone through this before, and what this refers to is that they're a hostile, they're an angry, they're a violent nation, and they are impatient. They're they're rapidly expanding. That's the idea of hasty. They are rapidly expanding and rapidly defeating the other nations around him. They march through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Verse 7, they're terrible, dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. Now, notice in that verse, we have their horses are swifter than leopards. What is that? That's using a comparative. It's, a simil- it's not a simile, but it's, it's using a comparative. How fast are leopards? Pretty fast. Pretty fast. So, you know, you can go look that up and see how fast does a leopard run. Well, their horses are faster. So are there, is that literal? Are their horses literally faster than leopards? No, this is hyperbole, figure of speech. He's exaggerating to make the point. They're more fierce than evening wolves. Uh, their charges, chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle. Notice, as the eagle is a comparative. So that's a simile. They're comparing their speed to eagles hastening to eat. And what's the imagery there of hastening to eat, to devour? They're devouring their enemy. Uh, they, verse 9, they all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. Why the east wind? The west wind in Judah comes from where? The sea. Where does the east wind come from? The desert, hot, scorching. That's the direction also of, uh, 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 so it's a harsh wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff as kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold. So they're arrogant. They're antagonistic to other authorities. They're they're self-indulgent. They heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Uh, then his mind changes, he transgresses, he commits offense, ascribing his pa- the, this power to his God. So God is, what, what, what's God doing here in these six verses? He's outlining uh, the uh, penalties of the contract. 
He's, uh, he's describing the horrors of the Chaldeans. He's making it look really bad. These guys are extremely nasty. They are, um, they're, they're powerful. They're vicious. They're violent. They're destructive. And he paints them in the harshest terms that he can. Okay? And then we get Habakkuk's response in verse 12. Down through 2-1. And what, what, what is the prophet doing? So, so what would the application be from, let's, before we move on, what would the application be from 5 through 11? That would be interpretation. What's the application? How would we take? What's a general principle that we could develop from that text and apply it to our present situation? Well, that Jesus Christ controls history. Well, that's probably right. A righteous nation does the opposite. A righteous nation is characteristic of the opposite of what he's described. Right, but, he's, but, but what God is saying is he's going to use the most vicious, horrible nation on the earth to judge his people. You know, he, he's, he's not going to use, a doesn't have to use a righteous nation. He doesn't have to use a good nation. God can use whatever he wants to to chastise his people. So, you, and, and is it expected? No, it's not expected. So God may bring discipline or judgment into a nation's life or into an individual's life, but it's going to be a properly designed discipline on that individual that may come from a direction and a quarter that is not expected at all. But God has the right to do that, and God is going to bring the proper and appropriate judgment uh, just, as it's, just as it's needed. He's not limited to only use that which is good and righteous. He can use whatever instrument he, he chooses. And then Habakkuk asks the question, now he says, God, basically you can summarize the next, uh, the next seven verses. How can a holy God use an unholy instrument to do this? That's basically what he's saying in the next seven verses. Aren't you from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? See, that's his emphasis there, my holy one. How can a holy God use an unholy people to, to judge his, his holy people? Um, my God, my holy one, we shall not die. O oh Lord, you have appointed them, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction, talking about um, his people. Your pure eyes are to behold evil. God, I don't, I don't understand this. You have pure eyes. How can you use evil? You can't look on evil. You can't look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Uh, how can you use the wicked, someone more wicked than us to judge us? You can't do that, God. That doesn't fit my picture of who God is. How can you use a, un, uh, uh, an even worse people to judge us? And, that's, and then he goes on to describe how, how unrighteous and horrible they are. Um, and his question is, how can you how can you do this? And then he ends in chapter two, verse one. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart, 
and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. What, what attitude do you see there in, in chapter 2, verse 1? Reminds me of Job. Not quite of Job, a, a little bit of Job, but it's more like his three friends. There's a certain arrogance there. He, he thinks he's presented a, 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 an ironclad case against God using the Chaldeans. Basically what happens in the flow here to really simplify it, Lord, these people in my country are just horrible. How in the world can you let them get away with this? And God says, I'm not going to let them get away with it. I have the Chaldeans over here, and I'm going to bring them in there, and they're going to destroy the nation. Lord, the Chaldeans are even worse. How in the world can you do that? That's totally unjust and unfair of you. I've presented an ironclad case why you can't do this, and now I'm going to stand here and wait for you to answer me, and then I'm going to see what I'm going to answer after you try to correct me. There's a real arrogance here. That, that, that God, you ju- he's, he's got God reduced to this, to a, a, a wrong conception that God can't use a more unrighteous people to judge his people. That would be like the United States saying that, you know, look at our country, look at our culture, look at how it's deteriorated. God, why don't you do something? Say, I got the Chicoms over here. They're going to clean your clock. Wait a minute, Lord, they're worse than us. How can you use them? We still love you. We're still sending out missionaries. We're still doing all these wonderful things. That'd be a parallel, right? Okay, then the Lord answers him. Chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Okay, in other words, that the person who reads it will understand the judgment is coming and will take, you know, they can run, they can uh, get away, which is what happened. Because remember, some people, some of the Jews left and they went to Egypt. Others went in other directions because they knew the judgment was coming. He said, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarries. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Very famous statement there. It's quoted uh, three or four times in the New Testament, each time with a little different implication and application. But the point that God makes here is that the just live by faith. So you're so concerned, Habakkuk, about justice. Why don't you trust me? Because the just will live by faith. You're not trusting me. At all. So implication, you're as you're you're guilty as well. And then God goes on to uh, pronounce various uh, woes against uh, Judah, uh, which go through the rest of the chapter. And as you go through this, and we're running a little bit out of time, I'm not going to go through the whole book per se, verse by verse, but it goes through this, and God outlines why he is bringing this judgment upon um, upon Israel, showing that he is absolutely just in bringing this judgment upon Israel, and it doesn't matter what instrument he's using. And what's the response? The response comes in chapter 3. And a prayer. 
after Habakkuk has been rebuked by God, in which is most of chapter 2, he recognizes that he has to submit to God. And in verse 2, he says, O Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, what is, what should, what's an application from this? Well, part of the application is that as we come to understand God's truth and what he's doing in history, our response should be expressed in prayer. This is another reason to do Bible study methods. As, as we learn to study the Bible, then what we do is in part of our individual worship is we can pray to God. It enriches our and deepens our prayer life as we respond to God in prayer in relation to the principles that we're learning in Scripture. You see, so often we have such a limited view of prayer that prayer is all about asking God to solve some problem in my life or a problem in somebody else's life. But when we look at the prayers in, in Scripture, many of them are related to uh, to just honoring and glorifying God and and uh, appreciating, recognizing what he is doing in our lives and in the lives of those uh, around us. And so that's the essence of what um, what he prays. And then he concludes with the great verses that we studied uh, several weeks ago where now Habakkuk has recognized that even if he loses everything, uh, his joy is really in the Lord. It's not in his possessions. It's not in his culture. It's not in his history. It's not in the stability of the world around him. It is in the Lord, and even though the Lord takes everything away from him, all of his possessions, all of his food, all of his prosperity, all of his wealth, uh, he will still have joy in the Lord because the Lord God, the last verse, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. In other words, he will give me stability in the midst of chaos, and he will make me walk on my high hills. So that's that's just running through Habakkuk very quickly to show uh, a little bit about how we go through, we integrate uh, observation, interpretation, and application. All right? Most of you have done a great job hanging in there. Uh, we missed Lorena this evening for our last class, but we're going to wrap up tonight. Anybody have any last or final questions? No? Well, I hope that this will be the start of a procedure where where you can read your Bible more intelligently. You've learned a little bit about how to do some basic biblical research and study on your own that will enhance your own, not only your own Bible reading, but also it will help enhance your understanding of what is taught from the pulpit so that you can appreciate it and Follow it in a little more, with more understanding and a little more in depth. All right, let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect through the last six months or so upon how to study your word, how to come to understand it, that we may learn how you speak to us through your word, and that we may come to properly understand it, interpret it, and then see how the things that we read, the things that we study, apply in our own lives and to our own thinking. And, Father, we pray for each one here that this will be the beginning of uh, a life of discovery as they read and study the text for themselves and that they use that to enhance what they're learning and studying in Bible class. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.